Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of The Dissolve. On today's show, we talk about how movies use nostalgia to play on people's affection for a certain time and place, and whether movies we enjoy can still be called bad movies. We also play a game called Double Vision, where I present our panelists with two very similar movies and challenge them to remember which came from what. And we'll wrap up with a recommendation face-off called 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned, Dissolvers. Two new movies, The Spectacular Now and The To-Do List, have us feeling a little nostalgic. The Spectacular Now takes place in the present day, but it represents a throwback to the open-hearted teen romances of the 1980s. And for me, a University of Georgia graduate, a return to the wonderful city of Athens, Georgia. The To-Do List recalls the raunchy teen sex comedies of the 1980s, but it takes place in the summer of 1993, which is very much a BuzzFeed-friendly era. Does nostalgia enhance the viewing experience? And how susceptible are we to it? Joining me are Keith Phipps and Tosh Robinson. Hi, gang. Hi, Scott. Hello, Scott. What's happening? So I guess my, my question, you know, Tasha, you have seen The Spectacular Now. Keith, you have seen The To-Do List. So maybe let's start with The Spectacular Now and Tasha. Tasha, did this film make you feel at all? Did it feel like a throwback to you? And did, did you have any warm feelings of nostalgia watching that movie? Well, no, I, I didn't really. I went in looking for that specifically because I, I knew we were going to talk about this podcast. I think if you hadn't brought it up, it wouldn't have even occurred to me uh, because to me it's it's not a nostalgia piece. Uh, for me at this point, I think a nostalgia piece tends to be like a lot more associated with movies of about the 50s sure. because that's the period I grew up in. You know, I, I was watching movies in the 80s when <laughs> you give me the eyebrows if you, you grew you up, in the, up in the 50s. No, I grew up in the 80s, which was, uh, uh, well, I started, I started watching movies fairly seriously like as a kid in the 70s and there was so much uh, nostalgia for the 50s back then. It's and so then, weird that you, that our generation can kind of come burdened with nostalgia of the previous generation because we grew up watching the films that were inspired by and nostalgic for the films that they grew up watching. Exactly. Like at some point, I, I, not, not to the sidetrack you, but I realized that a lot of my affections for like 50s science fiction, while genuinely based in liking those films, was also because you know Steven Spielberg and Joe Dante grew up liking those and made constant homage to them. Oh, wow. Well, That's a really you, good point. I'm, just, I'm thinking about movies like you know American Graffiti or sure. Dirty Dancing or Grease, you know, movies that like, were playing constantly when I was a kid right. that were throwbacks to, oh, the 50s, don't we remember them so fondly, it, you know, which was a whole different... <laughs> I, I was, as Keith said, completely burned by a different generation. Well, so let, me, maybe, maybe. let me clarify what I mean, though, in this particular case. The specific thing I'm referencing is the, the, you know, the fact that The Spectacular Now has been compared to films like Say Anything or John Hughes films from that period and kind of evokes that same feeling, specifically in the way it has these two lead characters who address each other in a very sincere straightforward way. I mean, this is not a very high-concept movie. This is a, a very kind of open-hearted relationship film of a somewhat older school. I didn't see that at all. I mean, when, when you look back at all those John Hughes movies, one of the things that you see is there's a lot more about the women in them. Like, the women are, are equal characters. If you look at Pretty in Pink or, or The Breakfast Club or some kind of wonderful, like, all of these films have, like, girls that you're kind of studying, like, their feelings. Watching The Spectacular Now, but it's Where was Shia, is, is Shailene Woodley not in that movie? Uh, the Spectacular Now? I mean, she's an incredible character. The movie completely loses interest in her halfway through, and that was kind of where it stopped being a nostalgia piece for me, because it stopped being about their relationship, and it started being about him. 
him, him and his father, him and his baggage, him and his his damage, him and his way of coasting through life, and eventually him and his his coming of age. It's not a nostalgia piece, and it's not a romance. It's a coming of age movie, and you know it didn't bring up a bunch of nostalgia for the kind of teen romances of my youth, because it it feels like a '90s movie. It it feels like a '90s or, or 2000s movie obsessed with the coming of age of a teenage boy. I guess my feeling about this movie is that it plays on that tradition, a tradition I think we've skipped for the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Movie. Really? I mean, look at something like Nick Nora's Endless Playlist. Yeah. I mean, which, is, which also plays on that, which is a nostalgia piece explicitly and does sort of play with those same feelings. To me, beyond the John Hughes connection or the Cameron Crowe connection or whatever you want to say about the movie, uh, one of the things, one of the very personal ways this movie played on me is the fact that it is shot in Athens, Georgia, which is where I went to college. And, uh, you know, it's shot in a very interesting way. I mean, they're, they're, you do see a couple of uh, spots like Wuxtery and the Georgia Bar, which are, you know, if you've lived in Athens, are very important spots. But in, in other ways, it's kind of an every city the way, way it's way it's presented but you know I still felt a certain amount of affection for it and I was curious to ask the two of you if you've if you've had those feelings before if you if you feel a certain more, more affinity for a movie that touches on something that personal to your own lives yeah absolutely I mean one I think the I think high fidelity is a fine film and I enjoy it but I think my feelings for liking it are kind of tied up with the way it captured the way Chicago looked when I moved here uh, about, uh, you know, I moved here in 2001. The film is a 2000 film and, you know, it's not like it's changed drastically since then, but it has changed. And, and there's, and you know, the, all, all the record stores that, that seemingly most of the record stores that inspired that movie are, aren't even there anymore. Um, so that, that whole kind of cult, you know, Chicago record store culture has gotten a, a lot thinner than, than it used to be. So there's, there's that for me for sure. I mean, I think there's a huge thread in movies where anything where you recognize yourself in a film, where you recognize like a, a time or place or emotion. The place that I did connect to Spectacular Now in a nostalgic way was like fairly early on before, as I say, it kind of got sidetracked into one dude's story. There was all this stuff just about like the, the tender feelings of adolescence, the the boring parties where nobody quite knows what they, what they want to do, but they're there and that's something. Or, you know, those first tentative feelings of, of affection. I think anytime you can emotionally connect to a movie you're feeling a form of nostalgia yes yeah that's a good point that's a good i mean you know especially if, if a movie is as insightful as spectacular now <laughs> is in spots anyway that yeah i mean you, that, that there are, you can connect quite strongly and in you know you're taken back to when you were a teenager and that's there's sort of a universality to that well now see that's where we're gonna that, that's where i kind of figured we were gonna have a throwdown because there are an awful lot of movies like this that i've talked to other people about other people who who love certain movies and i'm going to name this one uh and two other movies that i'm going to watch your eyebrows go up when i say super bad okay and dazed and confused yeah neither of those movies really did i emotionally connect to on any level and okay. when i talk to people who love them they always tell me that's what it was like to be like in this place in this time or that's what it was like to be a teenage boy i was never a teenage boy and, you know, there are a lot of things, like, there are coming-of-age movies that I love that have nothing to do with my childhood, like City of God or Persepolis. So it's not that I can't connect to a movie that isn't where I was at a particular time, as that there's just, when people talk about the specificity of nostalgia being the primary aspect of a movie, and I don't have any nostalgic ties to what they're talking about, I, I kind of come up empty. 
Well, I, I, you know, I would say there can be, I think it depends on how uh, you deal with period, right? I mean, you know, I, to me, what, uh, there's a difference between, you know, Days to Confuse, which is a movie I love, and a movie like Hot Tub Time Machine, which mm. is a movie I dislike, and, you know, and it has to do with, you know, whether you're using elements of the period as these sort of just obvious, jokey kind of like signposts of the times. Hey, or, I recognize that humor. Or, hey, it's a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Hey, it's a Rubik's Cube, which is totally, which in a, in a nutshell is a review of Hot Tub Time Machine. And, and Days to Confuse, which which I think tries to go a little bit deeper, and not just in what people wear and we're listening to, though it certainly has that, but but also, also just kind of capturing the, the tenor of the times. I mean, and, and I actually want to get to, to the other film that Keith has seen. Uh, which I think falls into the hot tub time machine trap um, called the to-do list. Um, am I wrong about that? Is it one of those films that sort of sort of just has a lot of? What, I mean, what about what about its nineteen ninety three? You are largely wrong. I mean, I, I didn't love the film. I I, I liked it in spots, but and it did make some some very easy nineties jokes. But for the most part, it seemed very concerned about getting the details of nineteen ninety three right. Uh, the clothes, the music, uh, what people are going to see at the movie theater, all that. It seemed very much the product of people who wanted to get the details right and, and largely did. So the, it's got, it, was, it was fairly impressive in, in that respect. What I like is, and this is not quite true of this film, but I like a film like Adventureland where you feel like someone's gotten all the details right and you just kind of sink into the period. It's like you're traveling through time. And that to me is is important. And I find what you're talking about with Hot Tub Time Machine where they're displaying a lot of references without really much care about authenticity or, or specificity. It can be really distracting. And I'm very prone to get distracted by anachronisms, particularly for periods that I've lived through. I, I still get a little upset when I think about in uh, Man on the Moon when there's a scene set in 1979 with a Ms. Pac-Man machine in the background that just, just annoys <laughs> me to no end. I can't let that one go. Yeah, so I know what you're talking about. And that's not, that's not quite true of the to-do list. I think, I think when a film gets the details right, it really allows you to sink into it a lot more easily. Uh, it's not set in the past, but I, the opening of Young Adult is a really good example of that when she has the mixtape. And not only, I mean, just looks like a mixtape from from uh, from her college days. It's got the right, you know, brand on it. And, and the way the whole opening credits are kind of mixtape porn in a way with the sort of close-ups of, of tape going, going through. And it just kind of took me back to just how important this thing that's no longer part of my life uh, how important, it, how central it was to my life for, for a long time, making these tapes for people and listening to them and everything. And, and to me, that, that is nostalgia at its most powerful when, and when it appears in a film. I really like that kind of detail in films that were before my time. I mean, I like watching somebody get on a, a plane in parallax view and just like hand the stewardess 50 bucks for a ticket. You know, <laughs> I, this is stuff that I, I wasn't there for like I find educational stuff that I was there for I often find that kind of detail distracting in the same way I find a little distracting now when people have to sit down to the urban dictionary or wikipedia or sit down and have an IM chat or whatever because that's that's how people work these days so we have to get that detail in to make it seem like a movie of now I think the pieces the nostalgia pieces that work best for me are the ones that kind of reach beyond all of that to try to find an emotional connection and I look at films like Miyazaki's films about childhood or the Toy Story movies which kind of aren't about period detail I mean maybe in some of the specific toys but mostly that feeling of childhood like what childhood feels like and what imagination feels like. And that connects with me like way more than like having the right posters on the wall or the right music on the soundtrack ever will. 
Yeah, you know, Maggie Carey, I was listening to an interview with her and she was this morning, actually, and she was talking about, you know, getting those details right, but also setting the film before the age of cell phones. And that, that was actually the, my thought throughout Adventureland. It's like these people, they, it's very hard for them to communicate with each yeah. other. So they're, so they're, so they, you know, in the way that we do, so they're meeting in a different way. Uh, so there's, there's actually kind of, it's actually kind of wonderful to be transported in, into the, that time, that pre-cell phone era. Thank you, Tasha. Thank you, Keith. Sure. Before the Dissolve launched, I happened to notice that Tasha Robinson had seen the Patrick Swayze movie Roadhouse and rated it two stars out of five on the movie-based social media website. No regrets. Outrageous. Uh, I was very upset by that, and I asked her how could she not enjoy such a wonderfully entertaining movie. She replied that she did, in fact, have a lot of fun watching it, but it was still pretty bad. My question is this. Is there such a thing as a guilty pleasure? If we enjoy a movie, does that make it a bad movie? Tasha and uh, Nathan Rabin, king of the flops, <laughs> join me to talk it out. Hi, everyone. Hey, how are you? Hi, Scott. Oh, what's happening? So, Tasha, what, this is ridiculous. Let's 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 just start up <laughs> start up front with Roadhouse. Uh, why is this a bad movie? You, you know, first of all, you did. I'm not mischaracterizing you. You did enjoy watching Roadhouse. I did very much enjoy watching. Roadhouse. But you also say that it is crappy. That is because it is a crappy movie. <laughs> it might even be the definition of a crappy movie. It is a hilariously crappy movie. I mean, come on, it's got Patrick Swayze doing sweaty shirtless tai chi when he's not ripping the throats out of people. Okay. It's got a magical network of bouncers I'm sorry coolers <laughs> no, 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 no bouncers and cooler cooler is the head bouncer alright fine it's got a, a magical network of bouncers Scott has and been coolers. both actually so he's uh, <laughs> he, he used to be a cooler and then he was a bouncer you get promoted to cooler from bouncer so unless he was demoted down to bouncer which would be quite a career step I was, de- I was demoted because uh, you know I was on my break right <laughs> I was on my break no I never get that lucky alright so there's a magical net. oh god there's a ma- <laughs> You've, uh, you, I need brain bleach. Magical network of coolers and or bouncers. And or bouncers who know who's cooling and or bouncing where nationwide. There's some of the worst sex ever put on film. You it's, mean the most exciting, thrilling, yeah. and convincing sex ever. Let me film. ask you guys a quick sidebar question. Did, did you watch this film when you were teenagers, maybe? No, I've, I watched it recently. I wrote uh, a... Did you a, first watch it I wrote a disquisition on the subject uh, for, for a previous website. Let me, I just, let when me you, counter... When you, when you look at the sex in that movie and say it was awesome, I, I just... It's, automatically it, it, assume it, you I were 13 when you first saw it. I, I think say it's, it's awesome in the sense that it brings you pleasure and joy and uh, everything that movies are supposed to do. Ooh, so there's so let's keep that in mind. Uh, yeah, I'm, and, I'm very and, much and let, in, let me, uh, in Scott's corner. And let me, but let me make this point. That these elements, all these elements you mentioned are, are over the top. Very over the top. The yes. film is over the top all not the way unlike, down the line. Not unlike that movie, Over the Top. <laughs> but let me counter... Let, let Which me counter you with, uh, you know, do, do you cast Ben Gazzara in that role if you're not aware of what you're doing? Uh, do you cast Sam Elliott in that role if you're not aware of what you're doing? Um, and I would also also say that on a technical level, this film is beautifully photographed. Uh, it, it, it's it's wonderfully paced. Well, it has it's, a really interesting screenwriter, too, who uh, also did uh, other credits include uh, Romeo is... Romeo's die? Romeo's bleeding? Romeo's bleeding. Romeo's bleeding and wag the dog. Yeah, neither of which are bad movies. No, definitely not. You would, you would but even both have an, as, an intelligence good. and a personality uh, behind them. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, I think this is this is an over-the-top shit-kicker kind of a film, uh, Roadhouse. But I think it's a magical film because, it, because it's, because <laughs> it's, it's so much fun. It's certainly full of magical It's so much thinking. fun. And I, and I wonder if we... If we quite, and it's based on a Joan Didion uh, book as well. I, I wonder if we... we 
tend to question these experiences too much. You know, I mean, do we, do we have to characterize something like Roadhouse as a guilty pleasure, or do we just call it a good movie? I'd, I'd call it a good movie. I feel like the whole concept of a guilty pleasure is distancing ourselves and creating this, uh, you know, a sense of superiority over something that gives us pleasure and joy, and I feel like that is kind of a losing endeavor. I think our uh, esteemed former employer at the AV Club, Stephen Thompson, uh, who founded the AV Club and has now gone into NPR music has really kind of made the definitive statement on guilty pleasures. He's basically said that the the concept of guilty pleasures should be discarded completely out of hand and that if you love something, you should love it. You should love it unembarrassedly and fully and be prepared to recommend it. I'm not not recommending Roadhouse. When I say it's a two-star movie, I disagree with you about the pacing. (laughs) I'll give you the cinematography uh, that that shirtless throat ripper is uh, very lusciously lit, that terrible, (laughs) terrible sex scene is lusciously lit but, uh, but this was a movie that we are you doubting the choices of Rody harrington i am doubting the choices of anybody who sits down and says this movie is not only fun it is a masterpiece of craft and cinema i mean i'm i'm having a little trouble understanding you on this one scott okay. because you're yeah. you're such an auteurist you're such a fan of immaculately Rody harrington in particular like challenging thoughtful cinema yeah i mean this film is kind of schlock and to me it's kind of you know schloppily you say that like it's a bad thing well, I think that there are two different... A friend of mine puts movies and really all art on two different axes. Her whole theory is there's the good-bad axis, which has to do with things like craft and thought and ambition and intention. And then there's the you know awesome lame axis, which has to do with stuff like, is it super fun to watch? You know, Does it have giant robots fighting giant monsters? Does it, does it make you laugh? Do you have a good time? The happening is a terrible movie. Can we all agree on that? Sure. Yes. I, I had that. a blast watching it because it was so laughably awful. Then I had a blast showing it to people because it was so laughably awful. We played drinking games. We laughed. We pointed things out to each other. We had a really good time. But the experience that you have watching the film is not the film itself. I mean, by that standard, 2010's Clash of the Titans is a terrific movie sure. because I saw it in the theater with 20 people who were all drunk and laughing their asses off. It's an important distinction that you make. It's not something, I would not compare Roadhouse to The Happening, however. I think Roadhouse right. achieves what it sets out to achieve, which is, which is a super fun shit-kicking genre film, right? Okay. But I would say something like The Room, if you really want to get, <laughs> or, or, or Birdemic, uh, these are films that just did not turn out well, uh, but <laughs> turn, did not turn out well in a way that we find funny. Um, so maybe, there, so I think that's a different distinction, an important distinction to make. Uh, uh, But I feel like the pleasure that we get from The Room, that we get from Roadhouse, even that we get from uh, The Happening, I feel like on some level is genuine. Like these are movies that give us pleasure, that are enjoyable, that are entertaining. And I feel like, you know, the concept of whether or not these movies are good, that's a concept that I have kind of a a hard time wrapping my mind around, let alone, you know, sort of masterpieces of of craftsmanship, which I don't think uh, we're saying that any of these films are. I think in part it just comes down to can you recommend it in whatever pretense of objectivity like exists among criticism. I cannot recommend The Room to people as a movie experience. I can recommend that they go see it at their local theater with a bunch of people who are familiar with it because it's a fun interactive experience. I can't recommend The Happening to people, but I would recommend that they come to my Watch the Happening and Drink party. That's a very, very different thing. I think when we talk about good, bad, we talk about movies that are made with some sort of craft that, such that we see something in them that we 
we think we could pass on to other people. We think that they're achieving something that might be we might be able to communicate to somebody else in a recommendation. When we watch something and just have a good time, that's great and there's nothing wrong with it. There's no reason we should necessarily put that lower, but that isn't necessarily something that we can we can pass on to other people. I feel uh, the exact opposite way. I kind of feel like that's actually one of the pleasures of camp. That's one of the pleasures of theoretically ironic uh, enjoyment is that we can single out something that looks absolutely terrible or weird or bad and say this is a film that has the capacity to bring joy to bring pleasure to entertain i mean white house down uh, i think would fall under that rubric of <laughs> i would not say that it was a good film but it was an entertaining film uh that kind of set out to do that achieved what i set out to do which was provide this very campy very over the top uh you know sort of spectacle divorced from anything you know involving reality but i guess my my challenge to you on that specific one nathan is that right. is that you wrote you wrote the review for us for white house down two and a half stars but you're but i think your level of enjoyment of that film is probably significantly higher than that rating i remember reading your review right. and thinking oh my i really i'm, I'm sold on this thing. and it's a film that i encourage people to see yeah. you will enjoy the hell of white house down if you just want to see a dumb spectacle you will enjoy the hell out of it if you want to see like sort of this sort of insane exercise in self-parody i think you will enjoy that as well but yeah that, that, that was definitely a, a tricky one to assign a star yeah. rating to because i was wrestling with this whole thing it's like this is a movie that's fun that's enjoyable that i had a good time with also i have a hard time saying that this is a maybe, quote unquote good movie maybe rating systems are the problem then it's possible. I, I would actually agree with that. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, I mean, you can because because you know you can just describe the experience that you're having with the film and and not rate it, and that that would solve a lot of the problems that, that we're having there, which is that Tasha gave two stars uh, right. to Roadhouse. <laughs> and I feel like our, our film culture is, is all about codifying things, about giving things numbers and, and, and ratings and then ranking them in I order. I love doing that, though. And, I know, and that's oh, the thing. where yeah. it's, it's, it's the disease, but it's also part of what being a cinephile is about, is part of what makes movie going fun. But, I mean, I would argue when you rate a movie, and this, this comes down to why I gave Roadhouse two stars, you're trying to rate things like it's – I, I always come back to ambition in a movie. Like, what is what is a movie trying to do? Sure. Does it accomplish it? Roadhouse sets out to do some specific things, and I would argue that it does accomplish them, but it's not really trying to do all that much. And well, I, I feel like it's you know trying to be the ultimate kind of B movie. It's trying to be you know kind of the uh, the ultimate example of a certain breed of film that's very disreputable, but also very fun. Yeah. But is that challenging? Is it is it even interesting? I guess is my question. I'd say yes. It is. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, I mean, I go back and forth, and it really depends on the movie. And and one of the things here is, you know, every movie is different. Every movie watching experience, to some degree, is different. You know, except when you're watching the room, in a in a group of people, you're all having the same experience. That's why it's fun. You know, in theory, you're all kind of united in the experience of watching this movie. But most of the time, we, we watch movies kind of alone. We watch them in our own heads and from our own experience. That's why talking about them is so much fun. That's why, you know, sharing our opinions and, and debating, having these endless debates is fun. So the question sort of becomes, like, can you, when you put a rating on a film, you're trying to describe the film itself, not your personal experience, not your personal tastes, not the circumstances under which you watched it. You're trying to describe, like, what the movie is on an art, a fundamental artistic level. But everything is personal and everything is subjective. And here's a question for you. Um, how, have you seen slash what do you think of the movie Point Break? 
I have. And, you know, I, I had not seen it until I saw Hot Fuzz. And then, obviously, I, I had to catch up. Uh-huh. Oh, totally. I had so, to rewatch it after Hot Fuzz You didn't see Bad well. Boys 2, did you? Yes, I did, oh. in fact, see Bad Boys 2 <laughs> after I saw Hot okay. Fuzz in order to understand what I'd just seen. So well, both of those experiences were very colored for me by the experience of having seen Hot Fuzz first. So, I mean, I enjoyed Point Break in a this is a cheesy movie kind of way, but I also enjoyed it like sort of through the lens of this is such a cheesy movie that was very obviously a seminal experience for Edgar Wright. And here's what he turned it into. Right. But I mean, it's also a cheesy experience from somebody who has been recognized as a great filmmaker. Yeah, and it's, a, it's an impeccable, that is an impeccable yeah, piece is, of craft. Right. And I, th- yeah, see, I, will, I, kind of I will give you that it's he- like head heads above uh, Roadhouse. Uh, well, <laughs> <I'm trying laughs> Everything comes back to Roadie Harrington uh. and his shortcomings as a filmmaker. All right. Well, have I persuaded you at all to uh, to bump up that star rating for Roadhouse? Why obsess about grades? Why not just have a Roadhouse party with a bunch of your friends and talk to them about how I'm wrong? Do as I asked, Tasha. Jane Donor. Anyway, thank you, Tasha Nathan. So this is a game called Double Vision. The rules are simple. I take two movies with a lot of things in common, like, say, Volcano and Dante's Peak, and I ask my fellow dissolvers what detail came from what movie. The slight twist is that I'll also make things up. So sometimes the answer isn't Volcano or Dante's Peak, but neither. This week, in honor of the spectacular now, I'm going to ask you about Pretty in Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful, which are exactly the same, except Pretty in Pink is better in almost every possible way, while also not being all that good. (laughs) Joining me are uh, Tasha, uh, Nathan, and Keith Phipps. Hello. Hello. Hey, how are you? So, uh, Genevieve Kosky has the uh, gaming hat. That hat doesn't look very comfortable. (laughs) No. It's it's, it's It's actually a gaming piece of Tupperware, but the gaming hat made it sound a little bit more like Harry Potter, which I think the kids are into. <laughs> I'm pretty uh, sure we could bedazzle that thing and make it look a lot like a fez if we really tried. Yeah, no, it, it's pretty humble, this gaming hat. So uh, I'm going to start with Keith. Are you ready? I am. All right, this is uh, a quote, okay? You're terrified that your goddamn rich friends won't approve. That is from Pretty in Pink. You're correct. Yeah. Keith Phipps with one point. Gaming hat. Tasha Robinson. Another quote. Wow. I'd rather be with someone for the wrong reasons than alone for the right. Oh gosh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with uh, it's definitely from one of them, but I think I'm gonna just make a shot in the dark. Uh, this this game is gonna be hard. Uh, I'm gonna go with some kind of wonderful for that one. You're right, Tasha Robinson. All Sheer luck up. for the win. The pressure the pressure on Nathan here is oh dear god really intense. All right, Nathan, here we go. The heroine makes her own clothes. That sounds like the kind of crazy, spunky thing that uh, Kathy Stewart Masterson or Molly Ringwald would do in either one of those <laughs> or, or, movies. Or, or Mary Stewart Masterson. Or, or her as well. I am going to go with uh, just being completely, completely perfunctory and arbitrary. I'm going to go with some kind of wonderful. No. Wrong. Oh, no. Oh, that's pretty in pink. All right. Pretty in pink. God. Sews her own clothes yeah. and takes care of her. She's her, a fashion icon. Her, her alcoholic dad played by. Harry Dean Stanton. That's right. I'm not going to give you any points for knowing that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Back to you, Keith. Round two. Which film features a Corvette-driving rich kid named Hardy Jens? Hardy Jens. (laughs) Only a rich kid could be named Hardy Jens, That's right. right. I'm going to say also Pretty in Pink. No. Some kind of wonderful. Mm. Who portrays? Is that Andrew uh, Andrew McCarthy portrays the... uh... No, that would be Craig Schaefer. Andrew McCarthy plays... Andrew McCarthy is in Pretty in Pink. Wow, Keith kind of looks like Yeah, They really are the same movie. They are the same movie. Very confusing. And Carlos Jacquet. Tasha Robinson. Date night includes a trip to the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, That's Pretty in Pink. 
No, that is some kind of wonderful. Everybody's shaking their head. Clearly, no. I'm the only one that did not know that one. That's when Eric Stoltz paints that horrible uh, picture of... Uh, or sh- Does he paint it or does he show it to her? Wait, are these real movies that exist? <laughs> they are. Pretty in Pink is... Are you, is I think you're making up both of these movies. I've never heard of them. Pretty in Pink is set in John Hughes, Illinois, whereas Some Kind of Wonderful is set in Los Angeles. Oh. Not John All Hughes, right. Los Angeles? Maybe they're not the same. All right, here we go. Nathan. All righty. Two of the three leads were originally cast together in the movie Mask. Uh, that is, I'm going to guess that's Eric Stoltz. Uh, it has to be either, it has okay. to be either Pretty in Pink, Some Kind of Wonderful, or neither. I am thinking uh, Some Kind of Wonderful. Neither. Oh, no. I tricked you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Did all of you miss that <laughs> third round? That was uh, the second round. The second okay. round was terrible. You guys got to do better than the third. Keith Phipps, are you ready? I am. Two of the leads... Nearly starred in Back to the Future together. That's Leia Thompson and Eric Stoltz. And, and actually, it wasn't though. Leah Thompson, someone else was cast in Leia Thompson's role. It was the Nathan will know this, the woman who was on the uh, office. The office, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Melora, Melora um, Walters was Melora originally Walters. going to be. So I am correct. I am answering correctly and also questioning the veracity of your question. Really? Ooh. What are you answering, by the way? You actually gave no, no answer <laughs> oh, to the some, question. Oh, well, some kind of wonderful. <laughs> it is. Was, it yeah. is some kind of wonderful, yes. But uh, uh, not according to my sources. What do you think I'm getting this from? <laughs> I'm not pulling this out of my ass. Uh, all right, Tasha. No, you're pulling it out of that Tupperware that we're about to bedazzle and turn into a fez. <laughs> it's a gaming hat, hat Tasha. <laughs> all right, Tasha, this is a quote. You're so pretty when you're unfaithful to me. Ah, uh, let's let's go with let's go with Pretty in Pink for that one. No, that would be uh, Bone Machine by the Pixies. <laughs> <laughs> this is a film site, not a music oh, site. Oh, I, I fooled you. Pretty good one, you huh? Fooled Keith? me with your music. Yeah, he's that's a nod, by the way. You can't. Uh, Keith was impressed. I was just wondering if the Pixies were quoting one of the John Hughes films. I didn't even know it all these oh, years. Oh no, I don't know. That's how good it was, Scott. Thank you, Nathan. This is this is you. The heroine is given to wearing fingerless gloves. That totally sounds like uh, some kind of wonderful. Yeah, you know why? Kooky, kooky, kooky. You know uh, why she wears the fingerless gloves? Because she's full of quirk. She drums. She's a drummer. Oh, wow. She wears those gloves that kind of can drum. Is that why she has hair cut like a boy? Does she cut the fingers off of the gloves herself? Because if so, she makes her own clothes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sounds like Tasha is is calling the first one that Nathan got right? Okay, so the score is Keith 2, Tasha 1, and Nathan 1. Oh, my gosh. This is a very exciting final round, everybody. Okay, orchestral maneuvers in the dark, New Order, and Echo and the Bunny Men are on the soundtrack. Every John Hughes. <laughs> but I think you mean Pretty in Pink. I do. I do. Keith wins. Isn't she? Keith wins. That's it. Pretty I mean, you guys don't even get to go. Isn't she? What other, what other, what other questions keep, do we have keep here? Keep digging. I'm sure there's one about uh, Grandma groping some Yeah, we should, we should figure out who's, who's, who gets yeah. a second. It's yeah. the second uh, place here. Your oh reward gosh, and yeah. punishment is uh, singing the chorus. All right, second place. Our, our punishment is we've got to go back and rewatch a bunch of John Hughes movies. All right. Yeah, seriously. Oh, this is a good one, Tasha. Let's see, <laughs> let's see if I can get you on this one. John Hughes wrote the script for both films, but which one did he direct? Oh, he directed Pretty in Pink. He directed neither. Oh, oh, gosh. Oh, right. Howard Zweef. Did he direct one of those? Howard Deutsch. Howard, Howard Deutsch. Deutsch. Okay. Yeah, I, I oh, knew he man. didn't direct uh, some kind of wonderful, so I, I just went right up for the slam dunk, but you had moved the moved the basket already. I had, I had. Oh, this is you had moved the basket of confused metaphors. <laughs> this is this is in Nathan's wheelhouse, I think. This, this could be the tiebreaker. Oh, come on. Andrew Dice Clay has a small role oh, as a... Yeah. <laughs> well, that's John Travolta. I'm pretty in pick. 
That looks like John. That sounds like John Travolta. <laughs> well, basically, his entire persona was based uh, on John Travolta. Okay, let him finish the question. Andrew Dice Clay has a small role as a bouncer. Oh my god, it's unbelievable! Uh, hickory dickory dock, it was pretty oh, and big. It was. Get off my jock! Oh. Uh, I think that'll do. Uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, Keith gets the glory this week. No, uh, yeah. well, yeah, but every single one of these now has to end with a Nathan impression. I, <laughs> I, I, I hereby declare this. Well, and the, they all sound like John Travolta. Right? <laughs> yeah. My John Travolta doesn't sound like anything. Hey, what, hey Nathan, what does the RZA sound like? Oh my god, it's unbelievable! <laughs> all these tracks, they're so good. It's like these beats. Don't touch the hair. Uh, next week, we're going to play a game called Who is Nathan doing impression of right now? You actually have to know the quote for that one because they are all the same. All right. Thanks, guys. And now we're going to end the show with our version of a recommendation segment. We recognize that anyone listening to this podcast is probably a film buff with a long list of films to see already, and we're constantly recommending more. So in order to make sure we aren't wasting your time, we're staging our recommendation segment as a competition. We're calling it 30 Seconds to Sell. The participants will have 30 seconds each to sell the host, that's me, on a movie (laughs) or something related to cinema, a book, a soundtrack, an idea, whatever they want, and the host gets to decide who wins. Today is Tasha versus Nathan. We'll begin with Nathan. Three, two, one, go. I'd like to recommend the movie... Prince Avalanche, like a lot of film critics, I totally uh, lost faith in David Gordon Green after your highness, but he's back. This is a true return to form. Uh, the humanism, the beauty, the lyricism, the poetry that has made uh, David Gordon Green on a tour uh, is back in this film. It was a reminder why I fell in love with movies and why I fell in love with David Gordon specifically in the first place. I cannot recommend Prince Avalanche highly enough. It is an absolute masterpiece that everybody must see. Ah, you made it with two seconds to spare. Well done, Nathan. Okay. Three, two, one. Tasha, go. All right. At uh, Tribeca in 2012, one of my favorite movies was called First Winter. It's a first-time film uh, directed by a fellow named Ben Dickinson. He's tremendously talented. People who enjoyed Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, I think, will really like this film, which is sort of an intimate portrait of the inner workings of a small cult trapped for the winter in a distant farmhouse. It's beautifully directed. It's beautifully shot. It's really emotionally intense, and it's free on Hulu and Netflix. So... uh, Free. How can you possibly beat that? Ah, Tasha Robinson. <laughs> All right. I uh, I got I to gotta go with Nathan's passion on this one. Nathan Raven. Holy shit. Everybody's going to see I everybody. was not expecting that. <laughs> you, I, I never I expected to win anything. I think that was the happiest moment of Nathan's life right there. <laughs> uh, so, Tasha, uh, Nathan, thank you. Thank you. That does it for episode one of the Dissolve podcast. Please join us in two weeks for episode two. In the meantime, you can enjoy the Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. And if you want to pressure Tasha into bumping up her star rating for Roadhouse, she's at Tasha Robinson on Twitter. Thanks. Thanks.